couldn't take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it, what a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, oh. that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cat's Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cussworth and welcome to the Cat's Whiskers podcast with my colleagues Gus Marini, Mark Brunger and Anthony Petkovic. It's great to have you on board, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM in Perth. This week we catch up with one who kicked a ton. Yes, it's champion forward of the 70s, Larry Donoghue. But first, Anthony, what did you make of the Cats' effort in defeating St Kilda by 59 points on Monday night? Well, certainly probably their best win for the season. Maybe their best win in the last 12 months. But I'm a hard taskmaster. I, I don't know whether that game style will hold up against the really good teams in the really big game in finals. And can Paddy Dangerfield kick 50 metres? So the umpire didn't think so. And Paddy let him know, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting little sidelight to the game. Mark, how do you assess Geelong's performance? Oh, look, I was very impressed, Wes. Um, I think it was probably Geelong's best four-quarter performance for the season so far. They they really didn't take their foot off the gas at any stage during that game and, and probably could have really, really kicked away uh, at one stage there, but just sort of just maybe dropped down to third gear a little bit. But but DeLong's forward line, their forward pressure is just absolutely amazing at the moment. And the way that the likes of uh, Gary Rowan and uh, Tom Hawkins and, and co can lock that ball in the forward line is just amazing. And, and Tommy, uh, of course, goes to uh, equal leader uh, with Josh Kennedy on the, the Coleman medal, which is appropriate for tonight's program. Yes, indeed. Talking about goals for sure. And, uh, Gus, of course, uh, as we come to you, we can ask you, there's a lot of affection in the West for Sam Menegola. What's been the key to his re-emergence in terms of your opinion as he's developed into a real top-line talent for the Cats? Where's, and again, it's just an opinion because I haven't spoken to him and I wouldn't know, but I, I reckon it's just a sense of self-belief. I, I, he, the way he's going about his football, um, it's like he belongs. And for... For Geelong to go further in finals than we've seen in the last half a dozen years, 
we know that we need that lift from the second tier players, guys like Menegola, Parfit and Guthrie. And if you look at the season Guthrie's having as well, this is clearly his best season. So we all know what you're going to get from Dangerfields, the Ablets, the Selwoods, the Duncans. We know what we're going to get. But guess what? When it comes to finals, they don't actually win you the finals. It's those second tier players that lift. And, and that is really, every Geelong supporter should be really excited with what Sam Anagola is doing this year. And, and as well as guys like Cam Guthrie. I'm also interested in the opinion of, uh, of you guys. I love Brian Myers as a player, and I think he's really rapidly developed into a, a player of great calibre. But he always worries me when he gets the football because that is obviously such an, an incredibly unusual kicking style that I think sometimes he exposes himself because everybody knows where he's going with the football. Well, I think uh, you've got to give youth their opportunity to show a bit of flair. I like players that have a, an element of difference about them. So I don't worry about that as much. It's a Stevie Johnson type thing. We'll see that when Nakia Cockatoo comes into the, into the team. You need players with a bit of individual flair. You shouldn't coach that out of them. And I would encourage Myers to keep doing what he knows best. Couldn't agree more, Anthony. I think uh, he has shown that that he is a bit of a dead eye in front of the goals. And if you've got that sort of player on your half-forward line who can also get back into half-back and, and run the ball into the forward line, I think he's a, a great commodity and, and one that uh, a lot of Cats fans should be very excited about. As to was Lockie Fogarty, I think he was probably unfortunate to, to bow out of the team, but obviously someone had to wait for the players coming in. But I think... We've seen enough from him to uh, to know that that if anyone in that midfield is going to be missing in the finals, that he'll be able to step right into the heat of the kitchen and, and give uh, as good as any of them. Yeah, there's certainly some very encouraging signs. Well, of course, later in the program, we will have Gus Marini's team talk, The Bearded Wonders. But first, we're fortunate to have the chance to catch up with former cat, Larry Donoghue. <laughs> Recruited from local Geelong Club Thompson, Larry Donoghue joined the Cats in 1973. Within a few years, he emerged as a powerhouse forward, kicking 105 goals in 1976 to claim the coveted John Coleman medal as the competition's leading goal kicker. Seasons of 63 and 95 goals followed, with Larry claiming the club's leading goal kicker award over that period. In all, Larry Donahue played 105 games for Geelong, kicking a total of 339 goals and playing a starring role for the club throughout the 1970s. Larry Donahue, welcome to the Cat Whiskers. Thank you very much for having me. It's our great, great pleasure. Well, as I mentioned in the intro there, Larry, you came to Geelong from local club Thompson. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your time at Thompson and uh, some of the players you remember there and, and what the, uh, the competition was that you were playing in at that time. Well, I, I, I first went to Thompson out of the uh, Eastern Coast Little League, actually, and I arrived there in 1970 and uh, was captain of a championship side in 1970. Then in 1971 and 72, at uh, the age of 16 and 17, I, I, I played uh, at the Geelong 19s and played enough games with Thompson to qualify for finals, which is something which is unheard of now. You, would, you wouldn't uh, possibly think that that could happen now. And uh, then uh, in 1973, I uh, made the list at the Geelong Footy Club and played my first game in round one of 1973. Larry, um, 
even though you made your name as a forward later on, <clears throat> you had uh, Polly Farmer as your first uh, coach. Sam Newman was the ruck, and they, they seemed to think that you were maybe a ruckman at that stage in your early development at Geelong. Yeah, Anthony, that was probably correct. I, um, I played uh, the first two or three years doing a little bit of ruck work with Sam out of the Ford pocket and um, wasn't disciplined enough and only played 20-odd games in my first three years and was a little bit lazy and uh, then put a lot of weight on at the end of 1975 and I actually uh, dropped a lot of weight in the pre-season 1976 and Rod Olsen come along and decided to uh, play me at full forward in the, in the practice games and um, that was where it led to. As Anthony mentioned, Larry, you, you, you started off as a, as a bit of a ruckman and then you just explained how you sort of went into that role as a full forward. But growing up as a junior and playing for Thompson, were you always a really good kick for goal and, and, a, and a long penetrating kick as well? Uh, yeah, I was. There's lots of things I couldn't do. But, uh, I, I, um, yeah, I, I was always a, a long kick. I, I don't know where they come from. But uh, I always was a long um, drop punt kick. Couldn't kick a torpedo to save myself. But, uh, yeah, could, could always kick a long drop punt. Larry, I think Paul Jeffries might have been another Thompson boy that followed you down at Cadenia Park. Is that right? Obviously, you, your career's crossed over a little bit at the Cats. He was son, someone that you would have known pretty well. Yeah, there was three guys from Thompson. There was Paul, myself and Dave Manson. Who, uh, who 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 all played junior football at Thompson, and um, and Paul went on and uh, played. Uh, yeah, he he was he played pretty well at centre back under the Billy Goggin days of the early eighties, and Dave Manson played uh, a lot of ruck in the late seventies as well. So so all three of us contributed uh, fairly well to our local club. Larry, 1976 uh, was an, an interesting start to the year, of course, as we, we alluded there before uh, Rod Olson uh, took over the reins from club legend Polly Farmer as, as coach. But, but it also in the pre-season saw Sam Newman being stripped of the captaincy because it was rumours he was off to Richmond and, um, and Bruce Tankervis was named captain. So as a young fellow and, and, and fairly new to the surrounds at Cadenia Park, what was the feeling like amongst the players? Was it was it really um, unstable in the pre-season or, or was that sort of thing just not worried about? I don't think it was worried about too much, Mark, to be honest with you. Um, Sam, Sam uh, did try to go to Richmond um, and he... Uh, he, he, his clearance was refused and, and he hadn't actually trained at uh, Geelong at all in the pre-season of 1976. And I can vividly remember um, he trained once with Geelong on a Thursday night before the round one game of 1976 at the uh, Lake Oval against South Melbourne. And he uh, was selected to play in the ruck that day and he actually turned up to the game with thongs on because his blisters were that bad that he couldn't even get shoes on. Strapped him up and uh, three votes, Jay Newman. Um, he was one of the greatest players I ever saw. Larry, it wasn't uh, just your move to full forward in 1976. Rod Olsen was the first outsider coach, someone who was not previously connected to Geelong. 
Um, Ian Nankervis, who was a, a rover, was considered at the end of his days, was moved into the back pocket and, and established a new career. Uh, David Clark went from a uh, elusive half-forward flanker to a quarterback-style centre-half back. And Bruce Nankervis went onto the ball and Paul Sheehan and Kevin... Uh, Paul Sarah and Kevin Sheehan started their roving combination alongside yourself. Between the three of you, you kicked almost 200 goals for the season. No wonder Geelong made the finals from from 11th place the previous year. Yeah, I think Rod brought a uh, a bit of a, a uh, you know a fresh air sort of to the place. Um, Polly um, Polly was a was a was a coach who probably was a bit before his time. Um, very, very approachable. Very, uh, you know, we, we, we can never say a bad word about the great Polly, but um, he would have been, I, we believe that Polly would have been a better coach later because some of his theories were to run in the back line and run with the flow of the ball, which which is what happens or what happens a decade after he finished. But we weren't quite good enough or fit enough to do that. And we were keeping size to... Um, you know, 12 goals or whatever. We were only kicking seven or eight ourselves. So, but, but but Polly's series were were fine. But I think it was a little bit too early. And Rod um, come along and, and he did. He, he changed the end. He put David to centre-half back. Uh, and he, um, you, you, you're correct, Anthony. He was the, um, I believe, the first out of, uh, out of Geelong coach to ever coach the Geelong footy club. And going back to that 1976 season, Larry, which, um, you know, we, where you kicked your, your 100th goal for Geelong, um, just tell us what that was like because it was an era where, where we were blessed with a plethora of fantastic forwards, you know, just Linko, McKenna, Hudson, Luthan, Templeton. So your name is now amongst all those, all those greats of the game as well. How did it feel when you finally did kick that ton and you ended up um, with 105 at the end of the season. But what, what was the feeling like? Oh, the feeling was great, but it was also uh, a little bit, I know who said people will criticise me for this, but it was, was also a little bit embarrassing because I don't class myself anywhere near those types of guys. I think in 1970, I think, um, Peter McKenna kicked 144 goals and ran second. That's a little bit unheard of, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Hudson kicked 150, Jeff Lenko kicked 115, and the names that you you, you rallied off are. Uh, I'm just so uh, proud to be involved in those in those names, and I know it's something that uh, you can never get taken away from you. If I had any um, ill feelings about it, I would love to take five off 1976 and stick it on the 1978, so I could have done it twice, and then it might be a little bit. Uh, more known. But anyway, that's the way it goes. Well, Larry, we certainly don't want you to sell yourself short because we truly admire anyone that plays a game of football for Geelong or any AFL club for that matter. But to kick 100 goals is an extraordinary effort and something that we fully admire. Of course, you followed, wearing the number 23, you followed another great full forward. Tell us about, did he have any impact or any influence or provide any sort of level of role modelling for you? Uh, Doug did a little bit. Yeah, he, he went to North Melbourne. And um, so obviously he, he, um, he you know, was away from the, the Geelong Football Club at the particular time. But I had a couple of conversations with Doug and uh, the, the couple of conversations I had with him uh, were more to do with 
when uh, things weren't going too well um, than when they were going all right, you know, as to what you do and what you try and um, uh, get, you know, get around to, to make things better. And, and Doug was one of the, the blokes who sort of said to me, well, maybe just um, be a little bit more aggressive towards the ball and that. And, uh, I, you know, I took that on board, but it was sort of something that wasn't necessary in my nature. And it's hard to sort of install that type of thing into it. Um, but, yeah, no, Doug, and, and obviously I saw Doug at a game of footy down at past players last year and we still um, have a yak. And, uh, yeah, he was a, a great ambassador for the Geelong Footy Club. Well, Larry, we know one of the keys to uh, being a, a centurion goal kicker is, is getting good feed of the ball from uh, from the midfielders and the players around you. And, and Anthony mentioned some absolutely fantastic names here in terms of David Clark, Kevin Sheehan, mm. Paul Serra and so on. Was there one player in particular that when he was running out of the centre that your lips used to uh, just uh, get a little bit wet with excitement that uh, it was going to be uh, lace out and uh, hit you on the chest? Well, my good mate Ferret, uh, Paul Sarah, will probably hate me for saying this because Ferret, uh, he only he only uh, passed it when he was, you know, less than 80 yards away, but he'll hate me for saying it. But uh, I, I had a pretty good understanding with Mick Turner and Mick played in the wing and um, along with Sam, Mick's probably, you know, with Sam, the two best players I played with. And... Uh, I used to have a, a good understanding because Mick was very good in his left foot as well as his right. And uh, I used to have a good understanding with where Mick was going. Terry Bright was also very good. Larry, um, I want to talk about the pressures of being a full forward um, on two on two fronts. Firstly, it was also an era of really great full backs. You had uh, North had David Dench, Hawthorne had Kelvin Moore. There was Jeff Southby at Carlton, Harvey Merrigan at Fitzroy. There was a whole range of them. Laurie Sanderlands at uh, Footscray. And the second thing is, in those, in those 70s, uh, you were the barometer. If you kicked a bag of goals, Geelong invariably won. If you were held to two, three or four, um, it usually meant that Geelong lost. Um, what was that like playing under that sort of pressure? Did you, did you realise that yourself at the time? Anthony, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't um, take that pressure on board. But it was interesting in in in, um, in your uh, initial address of that question and the Dench Southby Moore era. We played twenty two games, so there's six of them, and um, they are respective uh, team of the century. Um, inductees of their of their clubs, um, so you knew that those six games you had your work cut out, mm. and, and and Harvey Merrigan, as you say, was a good player. We had Gary Malarkey ourselves, um, so if you play with someone else, you had to play on Gary as well. But there was a glut of uh, terrific fullbacks around back then, and uh, I always remember. And, and if ever I speak to people about the footy, that the Dan Southby Moore era was probably unheralded in, in football fullbacks for one particular season or one particular era because they were just fantastic players. Larry, we all know that you um, won a coveted Coleman medal. And in this day and age, we know that 
players do win individual awards such as Brownlow medals, uh, Rising Star awards. But if my memory serves me correctly, you actually won what is now the def- a defunct Kazali Award um, back in, I think it would have been the 1976 season. Can you tell us a little bit about that? About winning it or getting home that night, mate? Oh, a bit, of, a bit of both. A bit of both. <laughs> your recollections are. Because for most of our listeners, they wouldn't even know what a Kazali Award is. So if you can just enlighten us, that would be fantastic. Mate, you wouldn't believe it, but it's sitting right in front of you. And it's a, um, it was a truth, Kazali Award. It was, it was run by the truth, uh, the paper. And um, the award was for, they had a, just the best of everything in that particular year, not not a side, but they had a best back pocket, a best full back, best in half back, best half back flag. So there wasn't two or three or anything. And I was the recipient. And um, it was a an award, which is a, a very nice looking trophy. And um, it took a long time to get home. Let me tell you that. Do you think, Larry, they should bring it back? Because really, when you think about it, it's, it's not an All-Australian um, award, but it is actually identifying the best player in that particular position. It is. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it's not a, yeah, it's not an All-Australian award, but it's actually saying that you were the best player. So you don't have two Ruckman, you don't have two Rovers, you don't have two R-Ford flankers, you just have one of everything. Mm. So it was an interesting award and... Um, and um, it was a uh, a night that was in Melbourne, and uh, it was it was one that uh, was very eventful. Well, for the benefit of our Sport FM listeners in Perth, we're speaking with Larry Donahue, the superstar full forward of the Cats during the seventies. And Larry, I know that you're going to say, "Yeah, sure, Wes, I've heard this uh, from three hundred thousand people," but I was actually there the day that you did kick your one hundredth goal. And tell me about just the emotion around that, because. I reckon there would have been a, a real sense of um, anxiety in the whole lead up to that because there was such a sense of expectation that you were potentially going to do that. So can you take us through what it was like for you at an emotional level? Whereas it would have been a lot better if I had a kick straight the week before down at uh, Canadia Park. I, I was on 95 and I kicked the fourth goal about halfway through the, the third quarter. And... Um, I had four more shots and uh, missed them all. I don't know whether you call it the yips or not, but a couple of them were fairly hard. But the first one, um, there was kids running onto the ground because they thought it was a goal. So, uh, look, I still think maybe it might have been, but if it wasn't, it missed by the coat of the paint. But then when I when I got into the uh, the first file and, and uh, the first shot of goal in the first file, I missed as well. So I thought, well, the second shot I got, I just went back and just grabbed the ball and thought, look, just go back and kick it, you know, because uh, things aren't working out too well. But, yeah, there was a bit of pressure, but there wasn't um, – there was more pressure to try and win the game of footy, to be honest. Yeah. Larry, you mentioned uh, the uh, the game where you kicked your 100th goal there, which was against – I think it was against Footscray, I think, at uh, VFL Park yeah. in the first final. Yep. Um, apart from Cadinia Park, obviously, where, where Geelong played – the majority of its games, you, you kicked more goals at, at uh, VFL Park than any other ground. Uh, was there a reason for that? Was it the surface there? Was it a, just a, a better ground to play on? Or, or what, what do you put that down to? Uh, I didn't know that, actually, Mark, to be honest with you. Um, but um, it was a terrific ground. It was just a long way to get there, and it was bloody cold. Um, but other than that, it was 
it was a terrific surface and um, uh, no no I, I can't actually answer that I maybe the wide spaces I think I think most four fours are better off with a bigger ground where there's a little bit of width and where, where you can move um, and in saying that the Albert Park ground South Melbourne's old ground didn't have a lot of width and I remember having two or three good days there but uh, no, I can't really answer that, mate, I, other than the fact that uh, nice and wide and plenty of room to go. Harry, I'm interested to know about uh, your goal-kicking routine. Most of the great goal-kickers have a particular um, formula that they follow when they line up for goal, a particular routine that they go through. Did you have a, uh, a particular uh, thing that you put into action in terms of a technique? And, and where and how did you learn that? My technique, Anthony, was uh, very, very basic. And I related it to um, hitting a golf ball off the tee. Um, you put the ball down, you approach it, and you hit it. And, and my philosophy on kicking the goal was that you got the ball, you lined up where you wanted to uh, kick it to. I never, ever picked anything behind the, the crowd or anything lined it up with my right leg and uh, ran in and kicked it. And it was as basic as that. No, no, very, very uncomplicated. Larry, you do make it sound very simple and it, and it probably is a simple art for those who've got the talent to do it. So what would be your advice to the, the forwards of today who um, we know they do a lot more running. We know they do have a lot more fatigue in their legs when they are lining up compared to back back in the in the day but what would be apart from what you've just illustrated what, what would be some of your advice to the, the, the players of today who are who have just got average goal kicking techniques and records I think Mark what one of the problems is today and I'm only going on what I'm being told and 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 um, we can only go on on what people say is that because it's so designated to strengthen your legs that um, uh, I think Grant Thomas was the first to make mention when he coached St Kilda that, that um, players weren't allowed to go and do goal-kicking practice after training because the strength and conditioning guys said it was taking the strength out of your leg by having too many kicks of goal. Um, I relate that a little bit to if... If you're a golfer and you're not punting well, you probably don't go to the driver. You probably go to the putter. And and I can't believe how um, people would tell you not to go and practice your goal kicking when it might be a bit off skew because you're going to lose strength in your legs. It, it's always bemused me, Mark. And I um, and it still happens, to my knowledge. But but. Uh, I personally think that you, you, you just need to have a little bit of a practice at it. You know, you need to, and, and, and you need to just straighten yourself up and, and, and be relaxed and, and line the ball up with not the middle of your body, but line the ball up with the, the, the right or left thigh you kick the ball with. And I think Tony Lockett was a perfect example. In fact, Lockett was that exaggerated. I reckon sometimes the ball was outside the line of his right leg. That's how much he 
he uh, concentrated on kicking the ball. You never saw Lockett kick the ball with the ball in the middle of his body, dropped from the middle of his body. It was always dropped from his right hand leg or outside. Because when you think about it, that's the leg you're kicking it with. So that's where you've got to go through and straighten yourself up and kick the ball. Well, Larry, I think there might be a few players around that uh, could take a few lessons out of your book. But I want to just reflect a little further on the 76 season, which was notable for a number of factors. And one was that it was Collingwood's first wooden spoon. So my apologies to all of our Collingwood listeners tuning into this program. Uh, Carlton finished atop the table and went out in straight sets, uh, interestingly enough. Now, Hawthorne won the 76 premiership against North Melbourne. Geelong had lost to Hawthorne in round 11 by 12 points and then beat them in the final home and away round. Was it an opportunity missed, do you think, for the Cats? You finished fourth, but at the same time in a top five, obviously, it was pretty uh, it was pretty tight at the top, wasn't it? I don't think it was, Wes. I, I, I really think we were about the fourth or fifth best side. Um, the last game that we played Hawthorne down here, I may be wrong, but I don't think Hawthorne could go up or down. Uh, and, and I thought clearly Hawthorne, North Melbourne and Carlton were the, were the three best sides and Geelong and Footscray were probably next. So, no, I, I don't believe it was a missed opportunity. I, I, I don't think we were quite as good as the other three. Well, Larry, probably not a lot of people realise that um, after the 1980 season, um, you landed at uh, Fitzroy, where unfortunately you didn't you didn't play a, a senior game there through injury. But just tell us uh, what what led to that uh, change of scenery. Was it was it the uh, the change of coach at Geelong, or uh, was it just looking for a fresh start, or, or what led to you uh, heading over to Fitzroy? No, Mark, it had nothing to do with the change of coach. Um... I, uh, Billy Goggin took over in, in 1980 and, and in Billy's first game as coach, we played South Melbourne uh, down here at Canadian Park and uh, I'd got two or three goals and halfway through the second quarter, I dislocated my shoulder and um, I was supposed to miss four to six weeks and I broke the healing process and uh, played the next game which was Easter Monday against Carlton at, uh, at Princess Park. Um, was in and out of the side, lacked a little bit of form, dislocated my shoulder again uh, at training, um, mid, mid-season 1980, and then missed the four or six games I was supposed to miss. Lost uh, a fair bit of confidence. And at the end of 1980, I really thought that... Um, my, my time was up. And, and and personally, if I had my time over, uh, I wouldn't have made the decision to leave. I would have stayed. Uh, in saying that, Fitzroy were fantastic. You know, they were, they were, um, they were at the junction over, they were based at the junction over all the time. And uh, they'd been sort of everywhere. They had home grounds or whatever, but they were fantastic. And I dislocated my shoulder twice again. Uh, in a practice game and a, a training again and led to an operation where I missed half the year and and I got back in about the third last game of the year I got 10 goals in the seconds against Footscray and Footscray and, and uh, Fitzroy at the time I don't know whether you remember they had a really good side you know they had 
Uh, Ron Alexander and Matt Rendell changing at full four. Bernie Quinlan was playing centre forward, and I basically was on the um, the next two list. You know, I had to rely on an injury, which didn't happen. I did the pre-season of '82, uh, Mark, and um, I got to February and I was washed up. I'd had it. I um, I'd played the first game at 17 and. Um, I really just, and when you get to that stage, when you're playing that stand of footy, where you're not enjoying going to training and uh, things aren't going right, you've got to make a decision. I made a decision to walk away, which I felt very um, badly about to the Fitzroy Footy Club um, because they'd invested a little bit in me, but they understood where I was coming from. Uh, but if I had my time over again, I wouldn't have left. But you weren't lost to football in time, Larry, because uh, after you left Fitzroy, you, if my memory serves me correct, you quickly found your way back at your original junior club back at Thompson as coach. And later on, I believe maybe around 1988, you coached uh, Newcomb to a premiership in the Ballerine Football League. Yeah, I, I, I come back and I, I, I sort of just uh, decided instead of... You know, I had offers to go to Adelaide and, and, and Perth and whatever, but I, I just thought that that was defeating the purpose of why I, I got out in the first place. I just wanted to take a deep breath and um, say, well, you know, I, I've had enough. And um, I coached Thompson in 82, 83, 84, and Newcomb 85, 6, 7, 8. And at Thompson, we won the flag in 83, and Newcomb won the flag in 88. And... Uh, Anthony, I've got to admit that um, I, if I'm sitting here thinking about football uh, regards to my career, um, and I'm not saying I do it often, but I think about the times at Thompson and Newcomb coaching just as much as playing at Geelong because um, I had just as much satisfaction in those seven years as what I did playing league footy. And the reason being... Uh, you're in charge of a lot of people. You, you, you're not all that popular all the time. It's a pretty thankless sort of a job. Um, but uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And post-career again, Larry, um, you would have made some wonderful friendships at, at the football club at Geelong and probably at Fitzroy as well in your short time. Is, is, is there people that you still catch up with today that you, um, from back in your footy days, that you still keep in contact with and see around the traps? There are a few, but not as many as what I would have liked because, you know, my ex-wife and I went down to Winchester and and, uh, and had the lease of the hotel down there for 15 and a half years. I know it's not very far away, but... People will, will, will tell you guys that you, you move on. You know, you, you, people go to different areas and, you, and you, you have different parts of your life that you go through. And uh, I went through a, a different path in, in, in going into the hospitality industry. And especially when you're running a 24-7 business, you do, you do fall away from the people you're involved in. Um, but, you know, the Murray Wickhams, the Ray Cards, Terry Brights and that I, I, I still see and speak to every now and again. But I must admit that um, time does go on a little bit. Larry, of course, those that live in Geelong and that know of your exploits now as a cricket umpire will also know that you had a 
a fairly serious accident not so long ago. Uh, once again, in your quest to pursue your sporting interests, we want to know uh, the hip damage that was done at the time. How have you recovered from that? And are you well? Um, uh, and are we looking forward to seeing you back in action um, with the continuation of your cricket career if we get a cricket season in summer? Wes, I hadn't done much um, in my life other than uh, umpire cricket as far as footy and cricket, so I thought I'd take up cricket umpiring. Mm. And I thought, well, the last thing that's going to happen is you're going to end up on your backside with a broken leg. But um, look, I, it, it was just a situation at East Belmont where I, I moved across to, uh, uh, to, to judge a run-out decision and, and the batsman who tried to get into his ground, his back jammed and he, he, he fell forward and he, he missed the, uh, he veered to miss the, um, the uh, fieldsman and unfortunately collided into me and, and I was five and a half months post hip replacement mm. and I, um, unfortunately, instead of just falling backwards, he knocked me and, and I actually went upwards. So I actually come back down from being airborne and guess where I landed? on uh, the replacement hip. And um, as it turned out, the hip was all right, but because the uh, the hip was a replacement hip and had no strength, I broke the femur bone in my leg where the, the bone in your leg um, comes up from your the, your knee through your thigh and, and, and meets your, your hip. And I actually broke the femur bone in my leg. Uh, and um, that that was that was more the problem than the hip. Larry, I'm interested in your thoughts as a uh, as a former full forward uh, on on the Cats' uh, current spearhead in uh, Tom Hawkins, and uh, obviously you would have played with uh, with his father Jack. Uh, just how, how do you rate uh, Tom's career so far at Geelong, and also do you see any similarities with how he plays the game compared to his father? Well, firstly, Tom is a very, very good player. He's, um, I think he's been much maligned down here, unfortunately, but um, he is a very, very good player. He, he's strong. Um, yeah, he does some silly things, which is which is actually a little bit out of character for him because he's not that type of person off the ground. Um, in relation to his father, no, they're not similar. Um, Jack was a jumping six foot two athletic guy, uh, whereas Tom is three inches taller and probably, I would say, fifteen kilo heavier than Jack. So they weren't they weren't um, similar players. Jack was a terrific player himself, and as I said, Tom is as well. But uh, they're a very strong family, and. Uh, they have very similar, um, what would I say? They're, they're very similar in their outdoor life off the ground. Uh, you, you certainly know their father and son. Well, Larry, on behalf of uh, Wes, Mark uh, and Gus, I'd like to thank you for your participation tonight. It's been great, great talking to you and, and talking about your exploits. I know Wes and I grew up in an era where you and the cats were uh, at their best there in that uh, mid-late 70s period. And um, 
we uh, love watching you play and we love watching the Cats play and it's part of why we, we love the club today. So you had a great role in our, in our childhood memories and uh, we'd really like to thank you for appearing on our program this evening. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. Coming up, it's Gus Marini's Team Talk, Team of the Week, The Bearded Boys. Team Talk this week features the Bearded Wonders, and this is paying tribute to cult hero Max Gorn because he does probably sport the most recognisable beard in, in the AFL. But we're going to go back into yesteryear and a bit of, and a bit of uh, the current day to look at our favourite beardsmen of all time, if there is such a word. So I'll start from the back line, fellas, and I'll go through the, the entire back six of Jeff Dunn from St Kilda, Danny Southern from the Bulldogs, Mark Zanotti, on the halfback flank, Robert Klomp, and I'm sure one of our panellists will tell us about his sharp TV and what the, what the connection <laughs> is there, Jim Jess, and of course, one of the heroes and legends of all time that's, that donned the beard was Bruce Dawes. So... I'll throw to you, fellas. It tells a little bit about that back six that we've um, that looks quite menacing with with the uh, the facial hair. Well, I think uh, uh, for me, Bruce Dool is uh, the flying doormat, as he was called. Uh, it's probably uh, a highlight there. He was a very sort of uh, uh, very calm-looking figure out in the ground and very unassuming. But if you uh, took that headband off him, he absolutely went nuts. Uh, but he was just a quality player. Uh, and uh, one of the Carlton greats, and uh, just uh, one I'll always remember the, with a great deal of joy, as as did the uh, the uh, AFL grand or the VFL grand final streaker that uh, particular year, who showed a, a great deal of fondness for uh, for uh, Dooley. You mentioned Sorry. Robert Plomp before, with the uh, the winner yeah. of the Panasonic Television for one of those night series matches, awarded I think by Lou Richards and Peter Landy in a game where he only had three or four possessions. So they must have been really impressive possessions. Um, but he got himself a television, and he's forever known for that particular fact. The other player I like in that back line is Mark Zanotti, three clubs, West Coast, um, but he made more of a uh, a distinction at the Brisbane Bears when they're at their lowest point. And then he went from the frying pan into the fire going down into Fitzroy's final days as a league side. So I have a feeling that it had Mark Zanotti played for one of the big Melbourne clubs, he would have been remembered as a great player. Yeah, absolutely. Great to see uh, the ghost Jimmy Jess at centre-half back there. I don't think there's been many, many better centre-half backs in the uh, in the modern era. I think he was an absolute corporate Jimmy Jess and uh, a great Richmond uh, champion. Well, Mark Zanotti, yes. up on him, uh, along with Bruce Dool, and I think both Mark Zanotti and Bruce Dool look like they belong in movies. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, Mark Zanotti could be a bit of a Conan the Barbarian type, and, uh, and Bruce Dool looks like he's just come down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? So he should be in uh, the greatest story ever told. So... Um, there's some some wonderful stories there, and and Danny Southern obviously was an incredible character that came out of the West and uh, played in the West, obviously the West of Melbourne when he went to Footscray and was a great servant to that club. I I, um, I uh, just say this with all love and uh, and respect for uh, for Bruce Dool most uh, most definitely. But if you were talking Hollywood roles, do you think he he might qualify for the role as James uh, Manson? Or Charles Manson, I should say. Or, or Rasputin the Mad Monk. Take your pick. Yeah. 
I'm going to ask uh, Wes to give us a bit of a rundown of our centre line, which features a current day player in Basha Hawley. A Geelong favourite and not so favourite at the time, Brian Peake. And on the other wing, Johnny Gastev, another West Australian. Yeah, great to see a couple of Western Australians in this centre line. Uh, of course, Peaky is the one that interests me most. And, and we've spoken, we've referenced him before on the Cats Whiskers. And we'd love to get him on the program because obviously his arrival in Geelong was something to behold. I mean, Basha Hooley has just developed into such an important part in uh, the Richmond lineup. Uh, just playing great football, of course, uh, formerly of Essendon also. And uh, he's got a very, very impressive beard. Some uh, good growth happening there. My memories of Johnny Gastev was uh, he used to fill the hole in front of the leading full forward. Um, that was his role at Brisbane. And I think Lockett got him one day at the Gabba. And then Ablett, Gary Ablett Sr., collected him one day. And I think they're still digging him out of the turf there. <laughs> Um, where he was steamrolled by Ablett Senior on the lead. So uh, he was a courageous player, um, if not the, not the smartest player, maybe, to, to accept that responsibility. OK, gentlemen, we'll go to our forward line, the half-forward line. Now, this guy, a lot of our younger uh, listeners won't remember David Young, who was a really talented half-forward flanker for um, South Melbourne and then played in the grand final for Collingwood. Stephen McCann at centre-half forward. Tyson Goldsack on the other half-forward flank. And the forward line. Now, this fellow would rival Max Gorn as the best beard that the Melbourne Football Club has ever produced in Gary Baker. Josh Kennedy gets the gig from West Coast Eagles at full forward. And Simon Madden is in the other forward pocket. So I know it's a little bit unbalanced with two hairy ruckmen in each pocket. But, Mark Brunger, tell us a little bit about this um, forward line and how imposing this would be on a on an, a defence in any era. Well, I think it'd be enough to give you heebie-jeebies. Actually, just looking at some of them there, but but Simon Madden in particular, he started off clean shaven, but then midway through his career, when uh, in the late seventies, there when uh, uh, beard sort of become the day rigueur, he uh, he bearded up and and looked quite menacing in that one, but. Uh, Gary Baker, yep, I uh, I echo your your comments there. That would certainly rival anything that uh, that I've seen. He was a very handy player too, Gary Baker. And um, just from a um, a childhood memory of of collecting footy cards, he was another one of those players that was almost in every darn pack of playing cards that you got uh, for the footy cards. You'd always open every pack, and there'd be a Gary Baker smiling back at you there. So. Um, I don't know, I'm like a lot of other people, I don't know a lot about David Young, but I do remember Steve McCann from North Melbourne and I always thought he was a a very much underrated player and uh, a very important part of of the North Melbourne lineup of the time. He's also a good example of having to take your chances when they come because his third and fourth games, I think, were were a drawn grand final and then the grand final replay. And, of course, North won the premiership, so he's a premiership player after a handful of games. He played another 12 or 13 seasons, another 250-odd games for North Melbourne, never got close to a grand final again. So shows you've got to make the most of those opportunities when they come. Absolutely. Simon Madden in the pocket. It's interesting, too. Of course, we had Damien Burke a few weeks back, and he referenced Simon Simon, uh, Madden. Uh, as perhaps the best ruckman that he ever went up against. So uh, big raps there, obviously, from uh, a man that was a pretty good ruckman himself. We'll move on to our ruck division and interchange. Now, obviously, this 
this team was dedicated to Maxi Gorn. So obviously he takes the first mantle in the ruck. But if he ever gets tired, like we just mentioned, he's got Gary Baker and Simon Madden and even Stephen McCann to fill in for him. The ruck rover has to be Michael Tuck, who's probably played more games in the beer than anyone else known to man. And the rover is um, Carlton Dynamo Rod Ashman. On our bench, believe it or not, we have a Brownlow medalist with a beard in Graham Teasdale, another current day player in Justin Westoff. And now making up our bench is one of my favourites. And I had a man crush on this guy. And for me, I'd like to know what your opinion is, guys. I thought this guy was probably uh, best on ground in the 2009 grand final. Maxi Rook and um, just loved his beard and loved the way he went about it. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I um, really enjoyed watching Maxi Rook go around as well. He was just he only had one speed that was flat out and uh, and one goal and that was hard. Uh, loved him from that. Uh, funny little anecdote about uh, Max Rook. I was hosting a uh, trivia night a few years ago um, and asked the trivia question of who kicked the first and last goal in in one of Geelong's grand finals, which I think it might have been. Uh, uh, 2010, may, uh, 2011 maybe, I think it was, um, and asked the question, who kicked the first and last goal in the game? And of course, the answer was Max Rook. And, and as I was reading out the answers, I looked down to one of the tables just in front of me, and there was Max, uh, Max Rook sitting there. So uh, thankfully, his table got the right answer to that question. <laughs> the um, interesting one there was not only did Rod Ashman in the forward pocket have a beard, he also was one of the early players to wear the uh, bike helmets um, in, in the games, along with uh, Gary Wilson and a number of other players of that era, obviously to reduce the effects of concussion. But um, So he had the beard and the helmet, and he also uh, almost won a Brownlow in 1981. He went into the count as the favourite and just got pipped, as they always did in the last vote of the night. Yep, he certainly did. And um, I haven't mentioned the coach of the team is... Um is Robert Walls. Uh, obviously, I think he probably donned the beard for probably halfway through his career and definitely towards the very end. But started off with the sideburns, as we remember back in those early 70s photos. But um, but my recollection of him as a youngster is always having that beard and even when he, he was coaching. So he he's uh, the last man to compliment this team of bearded wonders. Now, of course, there's, um, the, there's the anti-bearded group as well. Ron Barassi, when he coached uh, Carlton and uh, North Melbourne early in his coaching career, um, was against both beards or sideburns in his team. You didn't get a game if you wanted to grow a beard or grow sideburns. And um, that was put a, would have put a dent on our Bearded Wonders team had Ron Barassi been involved in the selection. Yeah. And isn't it true that he um, he actually forced Gary Baker to shave his beard off? That's what one of the rumours was Indeed, back in the day. Yes. Um, and uh, Gary objected on the grounds that uh, his beard was the only thing that made him memorable. <laughs> well, all I, all I can say is that uh, Barass and the fashion police shouldn't be mentioned in the, uh, in the same breath after uh, the outfit that Barass wore the 1977 grand final, I think it was, uh, yep. the, the wide lapels and the, the blue suit. Uh, yeah, no, I wouldn't be calling the fashion police just yet if I was Barass. Well, of course, you had Tommy Hafey in the other coach's box in that grand final wearing his, just his white Adidas T-shirt. So a complete contrast. Uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't have minded if, if Tommy and the, the Pies had have got up just to, to spike Ronald Dale there. Uh, 
just a, a question without notice to the to the three of you. Um, we mentioned uh, Graham Teasdale in the in the interchange bench there. Do, do you reckon we actually saw the best of Graham Teasdale? I know he won a Brownlow medal, but did he leave us wanting more? I, I think so. I think he was a bit maligned. He he did suffer quite some horrific injuries, and I I think also too once you do win a Brownlow medal, the expectation just skyrockets, doesn't it? And Unfortunately, he got traded to um, to Collingwood and couldn't perform to the levels that he was at South Melbourne. But yeah, I I think he had a lot more. And I think I think he is unfairly maligned. He had he not won a Brownlow, they would have said, "Oh, there's a pretty good swap that Rich that South Melbourne got from Richmond at that point in time." But the fact that he did win a Brownlow, then the expectations go through the roof. And I remember Teasdale also starring for Victoria as a young fellow. I went out to see the Victoria play West Australia at VFL Park the year after he won the Brownlow, and he he dominated that day um, in tandem with Gary Dempsey. So he was certainly a really really good player. But I think injuries in the end, uh, and and yeah. and that's the killer for a lot of players. If you're not at your physical peak, and they're the things preventing you from being at your best, it, it's very very difficult to play at the highest level. Well, of course. So, who'd uh, be the captain of that? Uh, who'd be the captain of that team? Do you think, uh, us, the bearded wonders? Who'd be the captain? Well, we got co-captains because it was in honour of Maxi Gorn and uh, Michael Tuck would have played more games in that beard than anyone else. So, I think they can share the duties, and um, I think that team would be aptly led with those two at the helm. Now, Gus, you seem you select Michael Tuck in a lot of your teams. I think he features quite heavily. Is there another man crush involved there? No, not particularly, but this is just the nominations we get during the week, Anthony. And um, But I will re- I reserve my man crush for Max Rook because that, that definitely was alive and well. And, um, um, you know, just I just thought he was sensational. And I think um, what Max Rook did and, you know, to put to, put to bed uh, Louis Richards' uh, description of the Cats, I think he just buried the handbaggers when oh, he came certainly, to Certainly, without a doubt. And I think... Um, one of the, the, the voters in the uh, 2009 um, uh, medal there for the Norm Smith medal uh, agreed with you, Gus. Jared Waitley actually awarded Max Rook the three votes as one of the panellists on that day. Yep. Well, there you go. Well, Gus, let me commend you once again. You've done a fabulous job. You and, uh, of course, the selection committee of uh, about 150 of your mates who get together on Facebook and make these sorts of contributions. Uh, I would like to just outline for our listeners briefly what next week's team, the social distancing heroes and villains, how that is actually defined and how we won't read the team, obviously, because we'll save that for next week. It's just in terms of the parameters for selection. If you could take us through that in the few moments we have left. Uh, Certainly, Wes. And again, this is a bit of fun. It's got nothing to do with the fines that have been handed out to certain players and clubs. This is really just having a bit of fun with if social distancing rules were were implemented on the footy field, who would struggle and who would thrive? So naturally we, we think about the taggers of days gone past and the, the, the run with players of today. And we think of the outside running players, which were effectively known as receivers uh, back in our day as well. So what we're looking for is nominations of the, of the players that would thrive in uh, social distancing rules on the footy ground and those that would actually struggle with it. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of um, unique and some um, imaginative nominations next week, Wes. 
No doubt there will be. Thank you so much, uh, Anthony, Mark, and also Gus for your efforts. Of course, this podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, and it's also heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Oh, 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 o